Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Charles Pryor, and you're listening to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. Those that deny their history are doomed to repeat it. So tweeted the 45th president of the United States to his 80 million followers in June, as American streets once again were transformed into spaces of protest. It turns out that the president prefers one particular route between the American past and its present, and has vowed to defend it and all of its symbols against all comers. The once unifying power of the national narrative is now one of many points of sharp and often violent division. This is also true of the United Kingdom, as it seeks to balance its historical self-image with the realities of its colonizing past. Central to all of this is the question of how we write and debate our constructions of the past, a collective human activity as hardwired into our cultures as music dance, or art. Daniel Wolfe is professor of history at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. He's the author and editor of many essays and books on history and historical thought in early modern Britain, including the prize-winning The Social Circulation of the Past. Wolfe has also served as general editor of the five-volume Oxford History of Historical Writing and has published The Global History of History, a large book that came out in 2012. All the while, he's held a number of senior administrative posts, most recently serving a term as the 20th Principal and Vice-Chancellor of Queen's. His concise History of History, published by Cambridge, provides a cogent and compact survey of historical practice from ancient times to the present. Its point of departure is that those of us in the West could do with some consideration of historical traditions from other parts of the globe. Daniel Wolf joins me from outside Kingston, Ontario. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Charles. Welcome. Um, I just wanted to start. Uh, you, as I mentioned in the intro, you began your career as a as a as a student of of early Stuart or an early modern British historical thought, uh, and then you you widened out uh, uh, significantly. So, what led you to go global? I think uh, a couple of things happened. First of all, after you know several years of uh, teaching historiography surveys at uh, the institution I was at in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, I was ready for a change. I was also fairly intensively working on uh, a couple of big projects on the early modern side, but uh, they were very long term and uh, I wanted to do something else. Um, in the meantime, uh, but I think what prompted it was an invitation by a publisher to edit an encyclopedia of historiography that arrived in the early 90s. It took me five years to edit, and I realized that there were a number of other uh, such books, and I wanted to do something different, so I decided to make it global. And at that point, uh, there really wasn't very much on on the global side in terms of the history of historical writing, so uh, it was a real uh, education experience for me and uh, 
the that encyclopedia came out in 1998, and it led to other projects uh, like the, the such as the ones you you mentioned. And uh, and uh, I have to say, I've I've more or less transitioned permanently uh, uh, in I guess my late career to to doing. The global historiography probably rather more than the than the British history now. So in this turn, I mean, when we when we global history has been around uh, as as a, as an approach for a while, but not so much as you say a global approach to historiography. So what what perspectives on history open up when we approach it um, as you do in this book and and the larger book from which it's distilled as a sort of a itself a pan-historical, long-term, multifaceted, multinational, national, universal cultural practice? What do we get uh, that we wouldn't otherwise? Well, I I think you get, first of all, a sense of perspective on how the past has been studied in the West. And you find very rapidly that there are certain features in common with other cultures throughout the world. But also some many some points of difference that are quite significant. You also, I think, rapidly get disabused of the notion that the West somehow invented history and uh, owns owns the space. I mean, we all used to, you know, thinking of you know Herodotus as the father of history, Thucydides, uh, his uh, slightly later contemporary as the uh, the first writer of quote unquote critical history. Um, that's great if you are only considering the Western tradition. But the fact of the matter is, once you start looking at other countries, and uh, particularly in East Asia, where China had a historiographical tradition going back well before Herodotus and Thucydides, and some significant authors, uh, the early, uh, rather late second century BC Chinese author Sima Xian, uh, being, I think, as credible a candidate for a father of history as either Herodotus or Thucydides. But you also find that uh, they write in very, very different styles. The function of history for the relative society is uh, the relevant society can be quite, quite different. The assumptions about the purposes and function of the past in the present are quite, are quite different. And I'd say the third thing is it puts a very, very different perspective on what is sometimes a very, very Whiggish history of, uh, of the discipline, wherein it's all a, a series of triumphal uh, improvements in the discipline, beginning with uh, Herodotus and Thucydides, going right through, of course, to Leopold von Ranke in the, in the 19th century, and uh, ending in the structure of the current Anglo-American history department, uh, all of which I think as a scholar I used to take pretty much for granted and uh, now see things uh, quite differently. So the, to go back to sort of some of the uh, the commonalities, I mean, what are um, what are the, the the large commonalities that sort of emerge when we adopt a more sort of comparative global perspective? What what sorts of things seem to be fairly fairly central to the practice, regardless of where where we find it being practiced? 
Well, I think if you were trying to reduce it to common denominators, one, I think that is, uh, I hesitate to say universal, but I think very, very widely spread is the value set both on knowledge of the past uh, and on the adaptation of that past to use in the present. How that is done can vary quite considerably depending on whether you're talking about East or West, uh, whether you're talking about literate or non-literate cultures. And I, I did put a little bit of a caveat around the word universal because there is, of course, one school of thinking in anthropology, I think most closely associated with Marshall Salins, that says that thinking about the past isn't actually a universal and that uh, the kind of uh, Hawaiian Islanders that uh, Salins studied uh, did not actually have a particularly strong uh, sense of the past or its importance. Um, I, I was very, very struck and continue to use in teaching an article that came out, I think, nearly, nearly 40 years ago by another social scientist, Arjun Apadurai, called uh, The Past as a Limited Resource, which uh, we may come back to a little later in the interview, but um, which just demonstrates that the past is not uh, an infinite supply of exemplar and stories but as a matter of fact, it can be treated as, as a scarce resource like, uh, like anything else, which people have to struggle over for, for control of. Uh, and I know, I know you're getting to that a little bit uh, later in the question, so I won't go any further there. But uh, those are the sorts of things I think you, uh, you, you learn. And uh, the, you know, the, Almost every tradition has some kind of normative function uh, in, in the past, uh, either providing exempla for present behavior or standards to which the present should adhere, or indeed um, negative standards if you are you know, on the what we would now call the left. Uh, both the past and the present provide uh, negative standards of uh, normativity against which one must struggle to to improve things. So we'll 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 get to the politics in a second, but um, just to 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 look at the the book itself. I mean, could you just take us on a uh, a quick sort of tour of the horizon that it covers um, in terms of its temporal and and geographical. Scope. Sure. Well, the concise history of history, as you mentioned, is an abridged and revised version of the, I would say, at least twice as large global history of history that I uh, published in 2011. Um, and they, they essentially have the same plot. And uh, I, when I was beginning to write it, uh, a friend and uh, you know, frequent collaborator on my historiographic projects, Peter Perk, made the comment uh, to me that, okay, well, what's the red thread? What's the story you're trying to tell? Or is it simply going to be a, a list of different countries and their historiographies? And that really, really stuck with me. And I think the red thread to both the bigger book and, and the smaller book was that uh, the Western historiography did indeed emerge triumphant in the 19th or 20th century, but that was a modernity that could have unfolded quite differently. It was a modernity quite closely linked to the spread of empires, both in the 16th and 17th centuries, and uh, much later, of course, in the 19th and early 20th century. 
and a process that really pushed to the margins, or in some cases, completely extinguished a number of perfectly vital different traditions of historiography that had things gone differently might well have been the sort of standard of practice in the discipline today. But uh, so uh, in, a, in a sense, I told the story uh, as, as a bit of a, a tragic one of, yes, uh, the emergence of modern method, but also the exclusion and extinction of, of a lot less and voices that are actually beginning to come back in some ways in, uh, in through post-colonial studies, through gender studies, uh, and, uh, and so on. So we talked about. Uh, I mean, you begin uh, in your career in in, in early modern uh, Britain, and um, for those of us who have worked in that field, it's it's readily apparent that uh, the conduct of politics and the way that politics was discussed in that culture was deeply imbued with the the history of the culture, the law was a an artifact of history institutions were traced back in time the church was traced back in time and so much of political debate in the early modern period was uh, essentially an argument about history um and that that didn't go away um so i mean what is it about history that that makes it uh, so ripe for being politicized and and what is at stake when people uh, politicize the historical past, or are they politicizing it at all? Is it just a, is it just constructing an interpretation and arguing from it? Uh, well, I think there's there's a great deal at stake uh, because, uh, for the most part, people will see the current present situation, whatever it is, good or ill, as having emerged from the past. Now, it may be an immediate past, it may be a more distant past, but uh, ever since pretty much the 17th century and particularly since the the 18th century when uh, the i would say the moral role of individual examples in history the heroic example what uh, nietzsche called the monumental history began to fade a little bit and a more linear view of how the present came to emerge from the past became much more commonplace um, it's become very very important to have possession of of that and have one's interpretation of the past be considered as valid, often to the exclusion of rival interpretations, as you I think very astutely observed that you know to some degree has has always been there, and uh, you know in the early modern English context, and indeed uh, similarly in early modern France and many other European cultures around that time. It was e- extremely important the you know whole debate over the origins of the English law of English law, uh, debates over which uh, mythical founder of you know Britain or Scotland or over in France or Spain uh, had had an- greater antiquity, whether that antiquity preceded the Romans, hence all the many sort of Trojan. Uh, Trojan refugees that were seen to be mythical founders of the early nation states of uh, 
late medieval and early modern early modern Europe, and uh, that that continued. If you go through parliamentary debates, just to stick with Britain again, you'll find that uh, there's a lot. Of, there are a lot of lawyers who do tend to see things uh, in terms of precedent and in terms of. Uh, case law, you know, Sir, Sir Edward Cook being a great example from the early 17th century, but looking a century and a half ahead to, say, Blackstone's commentaries. And mm-hmm. they tended to be, uh, I would say, disproportionately, one might say, in politics, perhaps as they are, as they are today. And uh, But uh, I think it's also important to get outside the circle of what I would call high politics and elite politics. Because one of the things when you when you study local politics and uh, you know, arguments is that uh, the past affects even daily life so far as things like tenancies and mm-hmm. common you know the use of common fields you know mm-hmm. custom is by its very nature a practice anchored to the past. And there's been some very, very good scholarship on you know just just how much, uh, the dispute, for example, between enclosures and resistors to enclosure, uh, you know, turn on differing interpretations of what actually happened in 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 the past. Mm. To sort of pick up again um, on on the the early modern context, I know a lot of uh, listeners are are probably more oriented towards the modern, but uh, trust me, people. Uh, delving into the early modern is it will repay the effort one of the sort of the the major historical thinkers in our field uh, john pocock argued that a society's ability to control and to narrate its own past was itself a symbol of its power as a nation um to what extent do you think that is is still true in 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 contemporary in the contemporary context and 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 how does that sharpen the debates that we're seeing now well, uh, in one sense, it's a very Western model because uh, na- nations, in the modern yeah. sense, have a relatively recent existence. And uh, but I think if you substitute for the word nation the word polity, you could include yeah. city-states, for example, in antiquity, or the empires that I think have dominated through much of much of history. That it is essentially a a correct statement. And again, it's it's one of those. Uh, pretty close to universal features of historical cultures, as I like to call them, throughout the world. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned John Pocock, who you know has obviously had an extremely distinguished and long career. He's uh, now well into his 90s. And, uh, but one of his most interesting works, I think, uh, apart from the many, many books, is an article he published in the very early 1960s called The Origins of Study of the Past, A Comparative mm-hmm. Approach. And it's yeah. one I go to very, very frequently in, in teaching or in my, in my writing. And it makes exactly the point that I think you, you summarized. In fact, maybe that was a quote uh, from, mm-hmm. from that particular, particular article. Yeah, the past does contain what I would maybe describe as, you know, the, the, the armaments for, for present power. And that may be in propaganda. It is certainly in prestige. I referred earlier to all those national myths of uh, uh, how early particular countries were founded. You mentioned earlier debates around the antiquity of the church during the Reformation. 
And we find that, again, in other cultures. But I would, just to bring us back to the global, say that there are also some key differences. Um, uh, for example, we tend to think of debate and rival interpretation as being a kind of normative condition of historiography. That has not always been the case. I would uh, point out the Chinese traditional historiography where uh, it was considered that once a version of a dynasty's history had been established, that was the enshrined version of history. And indeed, they went to the point of destroying uh, the records that fed into that uh, in many of the uh, dynasties in, in Chinese history. So um, I think there's a balance between finding commonalities and between historical cultures and pointed to some significant differences. So you've spent uh, a significant proportion of your career um, on, on, in several contexts, and you did a lot of administration. Uh, and uh, I suppose in your role uh, as, as principal, you had a lot of contact with government. And I know uh, here in the United Kingdom and in the United States, there, there has been for a number of years a, a discussion about the usefulness of arts degrees uh, in general, sometimes history in particular, uh, and history is uh, fighting what looks like sometimes a losing battle uh, in in higher education with decreased enrollments, decreased uh, size of faculty, and what have you. Um, so I'm wondering um, how you see it now, now that you're back, I suppose, uh, away from the administrative side, um, how do you see history as a discipline uh, poised to contend with uh, the emphasis on on science, technology, engineering, medicine, and digitization, and the, the the fourth industrial revolution that we are supposedly currently in the grip of? Well, I mean, I think there's there's two different questions in that, Charles. Uh, I mean, the first is the issue of the government and and the enrollments on on that one, and the the second question is really how do we adapt to the digital world. Uh, I'll have to take the second one first. I think there, there's, I think, good news. I mean, there's just huge amounts of material available on on the web. It's not just simply putting up pretty pictures of of documents, but searchable databases and and so forth. You, you, I mean, you will well know just how much easier it is to search documents now than when you started, or much less mm-hmm. when when I started. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is a helpful massification without dumbing down that is, uh, I think, going to assist in keeping history uh, adaptable. And I think younger younger scholars, you know, those who've sort of had their PhDs within the last 10 years, are, I think, pretty much fully adapted to that, uh, to, to that world. So I think there is hope there. So far as the relevance, there, I think, in some ways, um, the discipline has been a victim, I think, to some degree of its own arrogance and its own success, having been the master discipline in the 20th century, so the 19th century, so-called, and maybe the early part of the 20th, it has definitely been overtaken by STEM disciplines and a an ethos of instrumentality in undergraduate training. But I, I think but we could take a, a long look at our, our own past as a discipline and maybe start thinking about some of the things that we've abandoned. We tend, as academic professionals, to get very, very snobby and snooty when somebody spouts 
quotes such as the the one <laughs> that Trump used uh, quoting Santayana, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, if you don't study the past, you're doomed to repeat it. And, um, you know, we, like everybody else, I sort of, you know, it gets my back up when I hear things like that misused. But the fact of the matter is one reason why history was regarded as so important for so long and not necessarily just in the university context is because it was actually seen as in some ways normative or at least as guiding on things like policy uh, on you know understanding whence the present emerged, on understanding the larger trajectory where it might be might be headed, and I think we've uh, poo pooed that to a considerable degree, and we've also I think narrowed ourselves uh, through the reward uh, system, uh, which comes through writing fairly recondite uh, uh, books with a fairly narrow audience and you know you and i have done this done this ourselves uh which don't sell particularly well are increasingly written in a a not very accessible language and as a result um we've we've kind of seeded the field to i would say popularizers some of which i think some of whom i think you know simon Sharma, for example are i think very very good and some not (laughs) So I think there's some work to be done there in terms of re- rethinking the future of the discipline and adaptation if we are going to continue to, I think, receive you know public funding and public support. I've been speaking with uh, Daniel Wolf, who's professor of history at Queen's University. The book is A Concise History of History, Global Historiography from Antiquity to the Present. Uh, it is uh, learned. It is written with great clarity. Uh, and it's the best single-volume survey of its kind currently available, and it will take a long time for someone to beat it. Daniel, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Charles.